0: You made it. Checked out of office to check into the sweet views of this place where the kids aren't asking for the Wi-Fi.
1: Mom, can we go to the pool?
0: And when you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it.
1: There's something scary hiding in the back of your closet. Your bathing suits and summer clothes thing you're pretty sure don't fit anymore. What if there was a way to get into summer shape in one visit? Here's Dr. Brian Strand for Sonobello to explain.
2: It really is quite remarkable. Sonabello doctors use a technology called microlaser fat removal, and the results are amazing. We customize your procedure to accomplish your goals. Just share with us the problem areas where you'd like the fat in inches removed. And in one visit, they're gone, permanently. I can't tell you how often I hear clients say how many years they've been trying to diet and exercise those inches away. And we did it in one comfortable visit.
1: It's time to get your summer on. Visit any of our Sonobello Bello locations across the U.S., and right now you can save $250. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. That's sonobello.com slash save.
0: All-hit radio.
2: on the Exxon Broadcast Network and our family of broadcast affiliates right around the world. If you'd like to uh, send an email, xzone at TV.com. on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV, and our main website where you can listen to the Exxon, 724-365, www.xzoneradiotv.com. My well, guest this hour is Robert Mazur. He's a former DEA undercover agent, and he's also the author of The Infiltrator, My Secret Life in the Dirty Banks Behind P- uh, Pablo Escobar's Medellin Cartel, it's, uh, and it's also going to be released on an international movie based on the book, and um, first of all, Robert, welcome to the X-Zone.
3: Well, thank you very much for the invitation.
2: Yeah. Um, Tell me, what was it like being a member of the DEA and, uh, you know, getting getting down deep in cover and living a double life for years?
3: Well, you know, before I did any long-term undercover work for about 14 years, I worked cases in the traditional sense with uh, informants and wiretaps and mm-hmm. um, search warrants and historical witnesses, and the majority of the time we were working on attempting to identify and um, and dismantle the uh, command and control of the Medellin cartel or other cartels in, in Colombia. Uh, we ultimately came to a decision that uh, the best way to do that was to um, start a long-term undercover operation that would infiltrate their money systems, because if you follow the money, you're going to be le- going to the leadership, the command and control, and those are the people we, we needed and wanted to identify. So my my career drastically changed. <laughs> at the uh, 14-year mark when I volunteered to become a long-term undercover agent. And I went through undercover uh, school training and uh, got mentored by some of the best undercover agents that have ever done the job before, Um, far better than me, the likes of Joe Pistone that the movie and the book Donnie Brasco is based upon, And, um, and also psychologists and trainers that are involved in that process to really vet the candidates and make sure that, at least from their perspective, they're putting people in harm's way that they feel are best suited to be able to handle the unbelievable stress physically and mentally that uh, living a double life for years on end uh, creates for an individual. Um, as they explain it to me, they're, they're put in simplest terms, they're looking for individuals that um, test out as people with a very clear definition of right and wrong, it's black and white, there's not a lot of gray in between, not a lot of rationalization. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I, after doing that, I was, again, uh, very fortunate that I had a leadership that gave me uh, a year-and-a-half's time to put together an undercover front uh, that I think is one of the more sophisticated ones that was ever used in long-term undercover. Um, I was to assume a role as a an Italian-American organized crime-connected, uh, uh, unscrupulous businessman, who had the capabilities of laundering large amounts of money for uh, the Colombian drug cartels. And I I, I was able to achieve that with the help of three key informants, two of whom were in actually uh, one of the five Italian-American crime families in New York City, and the other was uh, an informant that was uh, um, operating in Medellin, Colombia. So with their help, I ultimately uh, was able to become embedded in real businesses, an investment company, a mortgage brokerage business. We had an air charter service with a private jet, a jewelry chain with 70 locations on the East Coast, and even a brokerage firm with a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. So I really didn't have to be the best undercover in the world. I I was blessed with great training and, and leadership that enabled me to be able to have the time to really put that together so once the undercover operation started my partner and I uh, my partner played more of a street level um, thug uh, managing uh, the street people that were affiliated with our uh, with our mythical uh, organized crime group and uh, he was on stage for about six months with them uh, providing services that were that uh, were made available through his boss who didn't want to meet anybody and that was me and after six months, uh, they were knocking on the door to meet me. And then I took a two-year journey after that um, within the underworld, where I was ultimately able to become uh, very much involved and dealt with regularly wow. a lot of the people that reported directly to Pablo Escobar, including his principal consigliere, a lawyer in, uh, in Medellin, Colombia, and his major managers of his, his routes. I also became, for them, Robert. a conduit to the seventh largest privately held bank in the world.
2: Robert, you and I have to take a commercial break. We'll be right back. Exo Nation, Robert Mazer is our special guest. He's the author of The Infiltrator website, the infil- the-infiltrator. hyphen Welcome back, everyone. Robert Mazer is our special guest. He's the author of The Infiltrator, and his website is wwwthe infiltrator dot com, Robert. How hard is it for a deep cover agent to come out of deep cover if you've been in that lifestyle so long? And what precautions are are taken to make sure that you are able to come out?
3: Well, luckily there is an involvement um, when when undercover is approached scientifically, which it was um, while I was on this operation where you have psychologists that are involved, and on a quarterly basis, um, you not only have a contact agent um, on a daily basis that you're, maybe not daily, but probably every two to three days that you're dealing with that you're passing information to, um, who's acting as a barometer uh, somewhat uh, for management on one, one whether or not there are any signs that suggest that you're losing your... you're you're rooting into your your real being. But then there's also uh, sessions with psychologists occasionally uh, where they're talking with you uh, about how you're coping with what you're dealing with. And, you know, I think really what helped me the most was having my eyes opened when I went through the undercover training, because what I was able to learn was that a lot of the reactions that I had, which might otherwise seem rather um, abnormal, were really very normal to an abnormal situation. Um, I really needed to be very focused not only on my mental state but my physical state, how I ate, how much sleep I was getting, uh, because I really was under tremendous pressure, not just from the bad guys, but, you know, I might have a full day, um, and their day might end at 2 in the morning. But now I'd have another two hours putting a report together, um, and, and hiding it in hidden compartments in, in the apartment that I, or the, the house that I had. I had several homes. I had one in uh, Key Biscayne, um, Florida. I had one in uh, the Tampa area. And I also had an apartment in New York. But all of these places were places where uh, I could securely, after dealing with bad guys for a while, um, I needed to do reports. Well, so obviously I'm getting 10% less or more than 10% mm-hmm. less. Uh, sleep than than even they're getting, and they, and they don't sleep too much. No so you know you really have to be prepared for that and looking for things that might suggest um, not so much role reversal, but um, uh-huh. but also uh, think, things that might risks that you begin to take because you're not really focused on on your discipline. As an undercover agent, things that you might do, might not have done or thought of doing, um, when you were working in the normal uh, law enforcement environment, there were plenty of times when, when now that I look back at it, and and I, I really think that my my biggest sin by far, um, as a long-term undercover, came at about, oh, I'd say two-thirds of the way into the operation, where at that stage, I had convinced myself that. I had crawled through this portal of the real world into the underworld and was now at such a high level there, and I truly was. I mean, I was dealing with people who reported directly to the biggest criminal the planet saw at the time, and I was also in the midst of a bank that had all types of connections to terrorism, to uh, to the intelligence agencies around the world. Um, there was... Uh, there were major political figures, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S., that uh, were involved in unethical and, and illegal conduct um, with the bank. And and but I had decided, I had convinced myself that I had now gotten to a place that probably no other undercover agent was ever going to be able to get there. And and being a motivated in the same fashion, I think ninety nine percent of law enforcement officers are being wanting to be a part of making a difference and my definition of making a difference was being as close to the criminal activity as I could be and collecting evidence that couldn't be gathered in any other way. I therefore became what I think is you know, virtually an information junkie. I felt as though that there was nothing more important in my life other than exploiting the position that I was in. And I was willing to give up my my job, my family, uh, even my life, if that need be, um, for the purpose of seeing my mission through. And that's not a completely healthy position that you want your long-term undercover agent to be in. Although, even looking back at it at this stage, I can see how I would have convinced myself that I was in that very, very unique position because I could get information in a day, and I did uh... oftentimes i i mean i got information just through conversation with the people i dealt with where we seized more than a ton of cocaine in downtown manhattan in a storage facility uh, i was dealing with people who were moving hundreds of millions of dollars around the world and i was dealing with bankers who were very actively involved in an effort to corrupt the financial markets of the world uh... this was a bank that secretly owned u.s. banks in the united states that were being managed by very high uh, people, very high in in the U.S. government, previously in the U.S. government. Our former Secretary of Defense, um, Clark Clifford, was the chairman of the board of a bank that was secretly owned by BCCI. And all of this, um, it it ultimately uh, was determined, uh, BCCI, among its many criminal activities, was very much involved in providing resources uh, to those people within Pakistan who were feverishly seeking nuclear war uh, warhead capabilities, nuclear weapon capabilities, and had this machine continued to operate, I think we would have a completely different dynamic um, in um, with respect to the banking world and the power that BCCI was gaining around the world. They were the gatekeepers for many of the corrupt leaders. Um, that have since surfaced. You know, my financial advisor at the bank um, was also the financial advisor to Panamanian General Manuel Noriega. That's part of the way in which we were able to obtain evidence to prosecute him. So I I think getting back to the the difficulties of managing this um, within your being, um, that that, uh, pinnacle of criminal activity that I was able to be so close to pretty much caused me to be willing to lose things that are much more important in life than uh, the mission that was that was underway but luckily I got through it and I got through it because I think I had such great support Um, and you know by no means am I an individual hero in this story at the height of the operation there were as many as 250 law enforcement officers uh, around the world who were helping to keep me and my partner alive. So I, I often liken it to uh, I got the opportunity to play quarterback on the on the team, um, but I couldn't have you know, gotten the first yard if I didn't have a great offensive line and a tremendous defense, and, and we had that. And so uh, I, I was very fortunate uh, as a result of the very talented people that surrounded me
2: you know you you people who do undercover work are the real heroes because nobody ever really knows how much how much you do how much of the hard undercover deep core work that goes into any law enforcement agency that you know the story goes untold because of the the methods and because of those who are involved and their safety and their security how did how did your deep undercover life affect your family life? And, you know, you, you as an undercover agent, you had access to psychologists, you had a partner, you had somebody who would check in on you on a regular basis. But what about your family?
3: Yeah, they uh, they definitely were at tremendous risk, and, and, and not mm-hmm. just risk psychologically, but uh, physical risk, because uh, a month after the undercover operation was over, and a lot of people don't recognize that the work is really just beginning after everybody just got arrested because now you've got to prepare for trials, right. which takes it took two years here, uh, and then testify around the world, which took more than two years. Um meanwhile, your family is, is still back there trying to cope for the most part without you being the the father and the husband that you should otherwise be. And then beyond that, we had a month after the undercover operation, Um, Two federal agencies and an intelligence agency uh, reports to me that there was a contract on my life uh, alleged by a number of witnesses who were um, affiliated with the Medellin cartel. And so at that stage, um, I I signed powers of attorney, gave uh, custody of my home over to other people, my wife and I and my two children, who by then were now 11 and 13, Mm -hmm. um, left the country. We came back, assumed another identity, and uh, lived a very secluded life um, and a very abnormal life for them uh, for a number of years. And during that time frame, and I address this in my my book. During that time frame, um, you know, they didn't have for for a period of time. They did not have any personal contact with other family friends. Um, we operated or made that contact by one cell phone uh, that we had that we used, and um, and it was a very very uh, strange existence uh, for them. And then, in the midst of all of that, you know, then I had to take off and go testify in trials, and it wasn't like I would be gone for a week for that. Because, for example, in the the longest trial, which lasted six months, I got on the witness stand in the middle of March of that year and i got off the witness stand in the middle of june My i testified God. every single day for three months in a courtroom and you can't do that without complete total focus so even though i wasn't undercover i still wasn't home i still wasn't really with them and to make matters worse at the end of the, m- of the book as i say um i was approached to do uh, another undercover operation and i agreed to do it and so i went back under uh... for another two and a half years uh... this time operating primarily in panama city panama and in florida and um... and and then after that um, that was it that was the end of my uh, my work as a long-term undercover but um, in that second operation which is not in my book but it's probably going to be in a in a second book um the the undercover partner they put me with, little did I know, um, until the end of the operation, was on the take and, and damn near got me killed. I mean, I was working in Colombia um, at times, and during that time, two money brokers uh, in Colombia knew that I was a DEA undercover agent. Oh, and I'm very, very fortunate um, that the outcome wasn't much different uh, than it actually was. So, um, but really, the real heroes to these stories are the, the spouses and the children who didn't sign up for this type of work uh, and make the adjustments that they have to make um, in order to, when it's all over. Um, try to put your lives back together again. Those All right, Robert. that they may,
2: never heard. Robert, you and I have to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. ExoNation, Robert Mazur is our special guest. He's the author of The Infiltrator, www.the-infiltrator.com. ExoNation, my guest this hour is... Uh, Robert Mazur. He's the author of The Infiltrator. The website is www.the-infiltrator.com. And uh, he is a decorated undercover, former undercover agent for the DEI.
0: From world conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more. Wish the headlines would just stop. It's not a news flash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you are not alone. Support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through friendly people at ChurchesCare.com. At ChurchesCare.com, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. ChurchesCare.com helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit ChurchesCare.com today. That's C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S-Care.com. We look forward to serving you.
1: From world conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more, wish the headlines would just stop? It's not a newsflash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you're not alone. You may not know it, but support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through the friendly people at Church's Care. At Church's Care, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. Churches Care helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit ChurchesCare.com today. That's ChurchesCare.com. C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S Care.com. We look forward to serving you.
0: From world conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more. Wish the headlines would just stop. It's not a newsflash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you are not alone. Support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through friendly people at churchescare.com. At ChurchesCare.com, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. ChurchesCare.com helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit ChurchesCare.com today. That's C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S-Care.com. We look forward to serving you.
2: EA And, um, you know, to you and your family and to the rest of the people who, who do the very hard job that you people have, thank you very much from, from society. I don't think that society really understands what you go through. And I'm so glad that you've got your book coming out and a movie coming out that may open a few eyes.
3: Yeah, I think that's part of uh, my hope of the message. My mm-hmm. my hope is that uh, you know we share with the public, and, and this was something that my wife and I talked about at great length before I wrote the book. I mean, I I was inspired to write the book really um, uh, late after I had left the government because sure. I I wound up getting contacted by Universal Studios to be a technical consultant, which I became uh, on the the movie The Miami, uh, Miami Vice with oh, really? uh, Colin Farrell and James Fox. Yeah, and I worked with. Uh, Michael Mann who is just a genius of a director and at the end of the process he turned to me and said you know I'd really love to do a movie about your life and that really uh, caused me to sit back and and I and I said well you know how can that be and he gave me all of his reasons and 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 it finally really came home to me that if someone with that much talent and with that much creativity and with that much experience identifying and developing interesting stories, thought that that would be the case, then probably it was the case. And so I started a journey that took me another three or four years before I got uh, through it all, but I, I then was able to write the book. Um, and quickly thereafter, um, there was interest in, in Hollywood for the movie rights of the book. And that's not a very uh, quick process to get from someone buying the rights of your book ultimately you eminently going into production which is what we're at right now and um, and a lot of books um, the right the movie rights are bought uh, by production companies and and I'd say out of all of them you know there's probably Mm -hmm. one in a hundred that get into development meaningful development and then probably of those you know maybe 10% at best and these are just guess wild guess numbers but about 10% at best that wind up actually getting into production and, and being turned into a movie. So uh, with those slim odds, <laughs> it was uh, it's really amazing that we're going to get the opportunity to have an international platform, uh, ultimately, to be able to talk about these issues because there's so many important issues, I think, in this story. Um, my wife and I paused some about the idea of the book being written because it's kind of like uh, – peeling the scab off of old wounds. And um, that's sometimes not the best thing uh, in in the world. But we ultimately decided that this story was so unique and so important that it was our obligation to share it with the public. I don't think the public is aware, number one, of of the very... uh, Often, and there's quite a bit of involvement of a certain segment of the international banking and business community mm-hmm. in the laundering of hundreds of billions of dollars a year uh, for the cartels. They could never survive without that. They could never spread the corruption that they do around the world without that. And and it's something that really needs a light shown on it much more so than it has in the in the past. I think. And and then there's there's also the story of hopefully inspiring uh some people to become part of trying to become part of a making a, of a difference yeah. making a difference in in their own lives in their careers possibly in law enforcement but but then there's also the issue in my view um of the crippling effect that the cartels in Mexico and Colombia and elsewhere the Chinese triads all working closely together now today working closely with terrorist organizations and and shining a light on today's miserable situation that exists with the the, uh, way that these organizations, transnational uh, criminal organizations, operate freely around the world. Um, And then lastly, the other point that I hope I I get an opportunity to to make occasionally, because I think I'll get the opportunity to speak about these issues some after the movie is, is out, is to talk about whether or not there isn't some good reason to recalculate the equation for the war on drugs and, and hopefully getting uh, much more attention to what I think uh, is, is ignored too much which is the, not just the education but the treatment of individuals who have this disease that use illegal drugs because that's really the, the gasoline that runs this engine and if we don't have an effect on the demand I guarantee you from what I personally know from being in the trenches we are outgunned on the supply side we are absolutely outgunned and there will be valiant uh... battles fought and successes here and there by very dedicated law enforcement officers but when you really look at it um, statistically you can substantiate that less than one percent of the of the revenue generated every year from the sale of illegal drugs which comes to about four hundred billion uh... less than one percent is seized by law enforcement, and beyond that, somewhere between ten and fifteen percent of the drugs that are attempted to be brought into the United States are seized. So we, we are, we're, not, we're not really capable when you look at some of these Colombian drug cartels today who have changed their business model. they now sell twice the amount of cocaine on a wholesale basis to the Mexican cartels, and they use resources like seven twenty seven or seven forty seven aircraft proven in, in indictments that I can cite to uh, around the, the world. And they use, uh, one, uh, one group has somewhere in the vicinity of about 60 semi-submersible submarines, each of which carries contraband weighing up to 10 tons and can stay, stay semi-submersible uh, for three to four days with a uh, two-man crew. Um, we've seized those in the Pacific, in the Gulf, in the Caribbean, in the Atlantic, I think about seven is the last count that I saw. Um, but there's many, many more of them. Um, and, and there are massive amounts of gangs uh, that work within the United States and are the distribution arms for the Mexican cartels. Um, if you take one city like Chicago, you know, Chicago has been averaging about 400 murders a year yeah. um, over the last several years. There are more than 100,000 gang members in Chicago alone. Um, how do we deal with all of that um, with the limited resources that sometimes we have um, on the law enforcement side? We have to continue to work at cutting off the heads of the snakes. This uh, We've got to be able to do that because, it, and again, I, I make an analogy to sports. If you take your first-string quarterback out, uh, the team takes on a much different uh complexion in and, and the game. And you wind up with a situation where you have a less effective organization. So the more and more you take out the leadership, um, you destabilize these groups. Um, and, and that does need to continue to be done. But at the same time, we've got to recognize how important it is to find the resources to save the next generation and not talk about it now. That's, if you want to start saving generations, you've got a 10-year job. If you start today, to try to have a real impact on the demand side. And politicians don't like to hear that because that goes through two of their election cycles. They want to have something done before uh, the next time they're going to be voted for. And, and, I, and, and I, I'm sorry for that, but the bottom line is meaningful programs cannot be, be created overnight. And so I hope to talk a lot about the, the demand side and the need for education and treatment and economic opportunity.
2: When you look at what's happening on the Mexican border between Mexico and the US, thousands of illegals coming into the country each and every year, you've got a major war basically going on in Mexico in the drug trade. Um, as, As a former DEA agent yourself, you must find this very frustrating for those that are still fighting the battle. And how would you change things if you had the power?
3: I do find it extraordinarily frustrating. Uh, I find stories like, and I'll tell this one as quickly as I can for mm-hmm. you, t- stories like this uh, just completely turn me upside down. Uh, there's a drug uh, baron by the name of Rafael Caro Cantero. Rafael Caro Cantero is one of the most responsible individuals for the most horrific thing that ever happened in law enforcement history. Um, in, I think it was 1985. When a DEA agent by the name of Enrique Kiki Camarena was kidnapped as he was leaving the Guadalajara consulate in Mexico, he was kidnapped by, in part, uh, people uh, who were within the Mexican police. He was taken to a location, uh, a remote location, where uh, Quintero had doctors there to uh, pump drugs into him to keep him awake for 48 hours while they tortured him mercilessly. And then at the end, took something most likely like a tire iron, and s- smashed his skull. Oh, and a year, and, a, and a, excuse me, a month later, uh, his body was found in a shallow grave. Carol Quintero was tracked down as he was getting into a private jet. The E.A. agents and Mexican police were standing there uh, as he walked to his jet, surrounded by uh, bodyguards with machine guns he called over one of the mexican officers whispered in his ear making him a, a, an offer of a quarter of a million dollar payoff laughed at the dea and got on the plane and left for costa rica it took a while to get him but then finally he was brought to mexico but they wouldn't release him they wanted to prosecute him they said they put him in a prison well you know what finally what we came to learn was the prison that they put him in the section was was normally to hold 250 inmates what it did hold was him and one of his friends. It was transformed into a palace, marble floors, uh, a a kitchen for with a chef, uh, silk satin, I mean satin sheets on his beds. He had people that would clean for him. He had guns. He had radios. He had telephones, and he ran his drug business from there. Just last year, in the middle of the night, two a.m., he walks out of the prison that's there allegedly because the court found that there was an unconstitutional conviction of him by the wrong court nobody was ever told anything about it and by the time the US found out about it he was out of the country nobody knows where he is today that type of conduct has to stop that definitely is not to be tolerated shouldn't be tolerated by any nation and so how would we really be able to go about making a difference in this? What we need to do is we need to break down the barriers uh, and, and establish true trust globally, because these are global organizations. And we need elite groups within the United States and, other, and their ally nations that are comprised of law enforcement, military, and intelligence uh, members. And there is something very close to that in existence presently, within the Special Operations Division of the Drug Enforcement Administration, which is based in Virginia. They do tremendous work around the world. They have they have caught some of the biggest uh, criminals. Uh, Victor Boot is one of them. He's, he was was, until his capture and prosecution, the biggest supplier of arms to terrorists around the world. Those types of initiatives really comprise probably 2% of the law enforcement initiatives. That needs to be a much, much more typical uh, pattern of how we go about doing this. And there are things within uh, the banking world that can be done um, and, and by law enforcement to really identify, and I've written about this in, in articles that have been printed in the New York Times, um, in op-eds in the New York Times, and, and in other papers as well. But there, there are definitely things that could be done um, to trace monies and to identify, in my view, uh, the biggest money launderers every year. Um, and, and it's probably too long for me to explain the exact process, but there definitely is a way for us to be able to do much, much more in the way of identifying who are these international banks that are on a continuing basis uh, providing uh, very important services uh, to the transnational criminal organizations uh, around the world. We've seen recently prosecutions of banks, supposed prosecutions. The HSBC case recently, Wachovia Bank, and and others. Uh, Mm -hmm. These are banks that, unfortunately, our Department of Justice now deals with them by fining them. Uh, HSBC admitted to moving at least $881 million for the Sinaloa cartel and the Norte de Valle cartel. Those are the biggest in Mexico and Colombia. And they did many other things um, of a criminal nature. Um, You can find, your listeners can find all of the information about that by Googling a a Senate subcommittee report. Uh, Senator Levin from Michigan was the chair of that subcommittee. So just put in Senator Levin HSBC uh, Senate subcommittee report. And you'll see the criminality of it. What happened in, in HSBC? Now, one officer was charged criminally, and what happened? They, they paid a $1.92 billion fine, well, fines and forfeitures. Sounds like a lot until you look closely. That was 10% of their 2012 pre-tax profits. That's not how you deal with dirty bankers. You put them in jail, and you put them in jail the way we did in the story of the infiltrator. Um, and that needs to be done in order to catch the attention um, of the people in the international banking and business community that provide a lifeline for the corruption that's spread by these transnational criminal organizations around the world.
2: One quick question before we go back uh, to our next break in about a minute, Robert. Is Mexico a part of Interpol?
3: I believe they are, and I believe that uh, um, there, there are definitely, and, I, and I, I want to make this really clear, I believe that there are literally tens of thousands of extraordinarily honest police officers, uh, elected officials, Mm -hmm. military personnel, uh, judges in in Mexico that stand up or attempt to fight this corruption. Many of them are among the 80,000 people who have been murdered uh, by the cartels since 2006 in Mexico. 80,000 people is the best
0: estimate.
2: My Lord. I
3: can just tell you one one quick event. All right, why, why, don't headless, headless. why don't we do this?
2: I've got 30 seconds before I have to go to my break. Let's talk about uh, what you want to tell me and when we come back, Robert. Exo Nation, Robert Mazur is our special guest. His website, www.the-infiltrator.com. He's the author of The Infiltrator. And uh, we'll be back on the other side of this short break here in the X Zone. Don't go away. So nation what an hour this has been. My guest is Robert Mazur. He's the author of The Infiltrator. www.the-infiltrator.com. I there there's a story you want to tell us Robert and I want to get this through so we can talk a little bit about your movie.
3: Sure. Well, uh what what I was going to mention to give you an example of the Type of violence that exists um, not just in Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, these are uh, other areas that are very much affected by the mm-hmm. Mexican cartels, and actually their tentacles go all the way over to West Africa, which is a, a whole nother story. But um, with respect to Mexico, uh, it, it was no more than about a year and a half ago when it was reported 49 headless, footless, handless bodies, basically torsos with. Uh, arms and legs without uh, the hands or feet on them, were found at the entryway to a little town called San Juan, Mexico. And on the wall of the entryway was spray-painted 100% Z, that meaning 100% controlled by Los Zetas. Los Zetas is one of the most violent Mexican drug cartels. It's actually run by people who were uh, previously in the special forces of the Mexican military and defected and started their own uh, bodyguard uh, work and enforcing work for one of the cartels and then later um, morphed into a cartel itself. And what they basically were telling the people that live in that area was that they controlled everything, there was no sense in going to the police or to the military. Um, these 80 or these, these 49 torsos were not rival gang members. These were innocent shop owners, migrants, people whose bodies just conveniently became billboards for los Zetas so that they could show how much they can control and put terror in the hearts of the honest people within Mexico. It's that type of conduct. Um, And that then enables them to do, and this is a true story, where there was a husband and wife running what's called a house of exchange, Casa de Cambio, in in Mexico. And that's a very, very attractive business to the cartel because it can be be exploited to launder lots of money. And so imagine this. A guy comes in well-dressed, sits down, and says, you know, I'm here and I represent... um, Let's say it was the the Sinaloa Cartel. I'm here, and I represent El Chapo Guzman, and uh, we want you to know that we need your help. We're willing to pay for your help. Uh, We'll give you silver, but if you don't want that, we'll give you lead. And you will either profit or you will die. And by the way, isn't this a wonderful picture of your little granddaughter, Maria, who goes to such-and-such a school and gets out at such-and-such a time? And wouldn't it be terrible if she was in a horrific accident tomorrow when she got ready to leave uh, to come home. Now, I don't know about you, but I would do whatever they tell me to do unless I could get my entire family out. I'm not gonna have my granddaughter's blood on my hands. And so that's the type of thing that people in these countries face. They can't turn to the police because they don't know if the police are gonna turn them into the cartel. And so they are on an island and, and they need help.
2: Robert, uh, we've only got about 50 seconds left. Uh, your movie starts filming in January. You and I were talking off-air uh, about uh, some of the people who are going to be in the movie. Quickly, name a few names.
3: Well, the lead is going to be played by Brian Cranston, who was the star of Breaking Bad. And uh, the director of this project is a gentleman by the name... Of Brad Furman. Brad Furman's uh, done a number of uh, internationally released films. One that some a lot of people remember quite a bit is The Lincoln Lawyer with Matthew McConaughey. Oh yeah, great uh, movie. He, was, he, and his team, yeah, he and his team directed that. Uh, the principal photography is going to begin in London um, and then filming will move from there to Paris and then from there to Florida. Um, where um, hopefully uh, about a year from When we start shooting, uh, it'll be hitting the the big screens uh, around the world.
2: Robert, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, but uh, most of all, I want to thank you for all the dedicated hard work that you've done protecting society. Thank you, sir. ExoNation Robert Mazur has been my guest, the-infiltrator.com. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. At Progressive, you can get 24-7 protection, even if you break the space-time continuum.
1: We did it. We time-traveled to yesterday. Wait, Progressive covers us 24-7, but we just created an eight-day week, and it's 24-7 coverage, not 24-8. We gotta go back. Are you joking right now? Shh, I'm calling them Hi, I have a question about time travel.
2: Progressive offers more than a great price when you bundle home and auto. We offer round-the-clock protection, which literally means anytime. Coverage from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers and subject to policy terms bundle discount not available in all states or situations.
1: Texting privacy policy and terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting enrolls for recurring on text marketing messages. Message data rates may apply. Reply stop to opt out.
2: The
0: pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than 1 in 3 children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through 3rd grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days guaranteed with Hooked on Phonics even if your child has been struggling. Hooked on Phonics Text GRADE to 323232 now. Text GRADE to 323232.